The guests on Love Hurts occasionally use some adult language and go into some more intense subject matter, but that's kind of how real life works anyway. This is Love Hurts. I'm Brian Berlin. Today's guest is Fred Chong Rutherford. Fred is a comedian and storyteller living in Brooklyn. Growing up, Fred's experiences with racism shaped him into the type of person who wanted to make sure he made others feel comfortable. Fred looks back at a potential bonding moment with his white step-grandmother that turned into an uncomfortable conversation about race that he did his best to navigate as a 16-year-old. Hey, Fred, how's it going? I'm good, Brian. How you doing? Got my tea, got my time. Good, yeah, me too. Got my tea. Got the, the English afternoon is what I'm going with. What do you got? Uh, I've got the classic uh, Gen Mica tea, which is basically it's just green tea with uh, fried or well roasted brown rice like in it. It's good for your stomach. Whoa, I've never heard of that. It's delicious. All right, cool. I'll have to, I'll have to track it down. Uh, thanks so much for being here. And yeah, and I'm excited to hear what you're uh, going to talk about today. What did you want to talk about? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell a dysfunctional holiday story about my strange family, and a couple things that are important to know. So, my name is Fred Chung Rutherford, and my two first names I'm named after both of my grandparents, a uh, white grandpa named Fred. Uh, who's also super racist, and a Korean grandpa named Chung, who was an alcoholic that I never met. And in Korean, my full name would be Moon Chung-ho, because the moon is the family name, and his name was Chung-ho, and I I would be Chung-ho as well. That's what was told to me. It's possible that, you know, memory of family and just weirdness of families, like, stuff can get translated strangely and then the rutherford that's that white grandfather's side of the family because our names in the u.s like are patrilineal so whatever the father's last name is where that is and i grew up in a really small town at the tail end of the 1970s and it's funny in these days if you're mixed heritage that is recognized like it's often like hey you know oh you're you're mixed or whatever that is but then sometimes it wasn't and especially like the way that I looked at that age it definitely wasn't so nobody was looking at me as a kid and saying oh well he's got a white parent and a Korean parent they just saw Asian kid and in the late 70s in a small town in the Pacific Northwest what that meant was that I was Growing up around a lot of kids who maybe had a relative, maybe a parent who'd gone through like the Vietnam War. And so they're not seeing any nuance of, oh, this is a Korean kid or whatever that means. They just see like a face that looks like a Vietnamese face to them. And so that's that's the tension of where I grow up is that I'm surrounded by these people that dislike me for a variety of reasons mostly just based on the way that I look. And yeah, they had one negative experience with a culture uh, that has an identity that you are matching up in their brain. So they're immediately just putting that on you, regardless of what your actual identity is. Yeah. And then, you know, neither of my parents are real good at 
navigating any of that. You know, my mom is, she's a, uh, a refugee from what is now called North Korea. It wasn't called North Korea when she lived there. And she had fled with her family from uh, North Korea to what is now called South Korea uh, right before the breakout of the Korean Civil War. And she had actually grown up uh, during the occupation of Korea by Japan. So she lived through the Japanese occupation of Korea. She lived through all kinds of terrible stuff, the Civil War. Um, her mom was actually taken as a political prisoner in the in the Korean Civil War. Um, she has really terrible memories of soldiers like taking her mom away uh, one night. And so that's that side of the family. And then my dad's side of the family is uh, a lot of broken marriages. My mom has the same, has a similar kind of experience because her dad uh, becomes an alcoholic, like after all of these experiences that he lives through and is pretty abusive. And then uh, my dad has some similar characteristics, like in that way, uh, too. And, you know, my dad didn't grow up with racism. So to him, when I would tell him like, hey, you know, we've got this problem with Vietnamese, these kids like think I'm Vietnamese and they're abusing me. He's like, you just tell him you're American. And it's like, well, okay, that doesn't really work. Like you yeah, tell like him that he doesn't have the experience of what to do in that situation. Yeah. And then for my mom, that doesn't compute at all. Because she's like, well, but you're not Vietnamese, you're Korean. And so <laughs> yeah, just yeah. just tell them that. And I'm like, well, okay, I'll yeah, tell them. She's like, this is the facts. This is what the facts of this are. Yeah. What's the problem? Yeah, this doesn't make any sense. You weren't in the Vietnam War. I'm like, well, mom, this is what I'm trying to explain is that, that they think that this is what's happening. And Yeah, like this is what racism is. Yeah. And so their answers were a lot like, you know tell them you're American or ignore them. And it's like, well, none of these. Or tell them you're Korean, right? It's like, yeah. That, like, <laughs> yeah. And so then uh. eventually, eventually the kids settle on Korean and then just general slurs for Asian people. So I was like, okay, so that was, that was like the baseline. And then I was always trying to grope for like, what is a normal family? What does that look like? And how is that supposed to work? And you know, that means that you've got two sets of grandparents, right? Like, okay, you got grandparents on your mom's side, you got grandparents on your dad's side, but that doesn't exist for me on my, my mom's side of the family. Cause my, my grandmother on my mom's side, she was a North Korean political prisoner and she most likely died in a prison camp, like somewhere. So wow, my grandfather, his experiences led him to abuse um led him to alcoholism the korean side the one i'm the the chong part of the family and he's he dies like before i ever meet him and so he dies like in korea that's like one of my strongest memories is my mom uh, of that age like being like two or three years old and my mom wanting to take me to korea to go meet her dad but then that trip changes because he dies and so she has to take a trip to for his funeral like instead um, so that's that side of the family. And on my dad's side of the family, his Fred, the one that I'm named after, uh, was a bit of a womanizer and he had, he used to have like quite a few affairs and he had, uh, he, he had married 
my grandmother Doris and then was cheating on her and then eventually got divorced from her and then married another uh, woman named, uh, who had a nickname Bobby and he met her in Portland. And so I didn't really understand any of that as a kid. It was just like, it was just like, okay, I've got no Korean grandparents, but I have four sets of grandparents on my dad's side (laughs) of the family, but they're all, they're all white. But one grandma lives in Idaho with, grandpa sam and then the other ones grandpa fred the one i'm named after lives here along with grandma bobby who doesn't like to be called grandma bobby she just likes grandma so just call her grandma so it's like okay and that whole side of the family is different degrees of racist but they were still family and it was still okay well here's your grandparents and you live in this small town in the middle of nowhere and here's here's your family and this is normal, right? Because there's four, there's four of them. There's four grandparents. And so all of that means, okay, you've got the normal set, at least, you know, whatever, whatever that yeah, means. Yeah, you have two sets of grandparents, which a lot of people grow up with, but they're very unbalanced for what your identity is at this point. Yeah, and then I was always just trying to connect with people in, in sort of a loving basis, because that's also part of my personality is it's like, I'm someone that I really want, I really want other people just to feel comfortable. You know, that always makes me happy too. It's like, if the other person's feeling like relaxed and I'm feeling relaxed, that's, that's good. Because I know what that feels like when you don't have that, when you don't have that space, just to, just to get to be yourself. Like when everything around you is, is pushing you uh, to try to be something other than who you are. So part of who I am at that age and that I hopefully I still am is someone who's like, well, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to reach out to people. I'm going to try to be like a loving person like around these people no matter what they're like. And one of the things that was really on my mind was, you know, these people are these these people are the people that are here. This is your family. So make an effort. Just go try, try to go connect with these people. You know, try to be, try to be the best grandson that you can, try to be the best person that you can, be the bigger person. And so I started to make this effort to spend time with Grandpa Fred and Grandma Bobby. And that culminated with, uh, with them starting to get to know me a little bit, like at that, that age, like I really wanted to be a filmmaker and they knew that. And that was a thing that activated my grandma Bobby because she said like, Oh, my dad, uh, he was a, he was in the movies. He was a filmmaker. He worked on some really important movies. So why don't you come over and, and we can talk about that? And I said, sure. So I went over to their house and that was the story that she told me. She was like, well, yeah, it's like my, my, my dad was always upset that he never got credit for this movie, but he helped make a really big movie happen like in this country. And it was an important movie that was really truthful and, and had a lot of good things in it. And I said, well, what is that movie? And she said, the birth of a nation. And I went, Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. I'm like, Oh my God. So apparently now I, I, I'm assuming that what she's telling me is true. I've never had a way yeah, to like fact check this yeah but but she she said that her father was an assistant director on birth of a nation and that 
she he had helped like with some of like the horse riding scenes and some of those things which means that if the if what she's telling me is true it means that her father was the assistant director on dw griffith's birth of the nation and the part that he worked on was the part where the ku klux klan is riding around uh in their yeah, robes. like the second half of the movie yeah i think it was like my freshman year of college we watched that in film class but like only watched the first half of it mm-hmm. and i don't even think my teacher was like there's a second half of it and it's super racist and it talked like i don't I think I left that class being like, oh, wow, like that was a really interesting movie and like not (laughs) realizing that like it takes a real turn. And it was only like probably sometime after college where I watched at least a little bit of the second half just to like understand what it was. But I was like, this is insane that this didn't come up in this class at this time. Well, and then think about it, too, because what happens to everybody who doesn't have that context? You hear someone else complain about it and you're like well what are you complaining about and so all of that's rolling through my head and i'm like oh my god and it's this is like the age that i am you know this is like the early 90s this is the first time that i think people started to debate things like the historical merit of the birth of a nation like itself right there's there was at this time an argument that i think some people still have i don't think that this is a particularly cogent or reasonable argument myself but the argument would say like well it's historically significant but you know, therefore we should excuse the racism or it's historically significant and it's also racist. And those two things like can be true. And I think that it's historically significant because it's one of the first big blockbusters, but I think that it says something that one of the first big blockbusters in the country is this horribly racist film. And, and that's, that's the opinion that I had a hard time articulating at that age that now I feel, yep. uh, Even if people disagree with me, I feel like, yeah, I can, I can say that like then, but then at at that age, in that moment, that's all going through my head. And I'm like, I'm like, uh, and so all I can do is I look at her and I just say, wow. And then she's like, yeah, it's a big deal, isn't it? Yeah. That's so that's, that's your family. I go. And then, so I say, well, you're my step grandmother. And she says like, well, but it's not blood is important, but you know, we're still, we're still connected. And so I said, okay. Yeah, because so she, in this moment, there is this moment where she's trying to connect with you and she is trying to say like, hey, you should feel proud that this person in your connected family has created this movie that, yeah, now like today is, yeah, does not have a great legacy to it. Um, but she said, she's like, you should be proud because you were, your heritage is a part of this film history. Yeah, and my reaction to that is that's bunk. But I don't know how to say that at that age. Yeah, how are you supposed to have that conversation with somebody who's what in her at that point 70s or 80s or whatever to say like uh no, actually this movie's problematic and yeah. Yeah, that's that's a tough conversation to have. Yeah. And that ends up being like the tone for that whole visit with her because it's the last time I ever spent any extended period of time like with her because it was a couple hours. That was just sort of the, the beginning of it too. And I I tried to awkwardly and not directly enough like at that age uh, just say that, well, this is a, a problem. You know, the Ku Klux Klan is like not a good group of people and this movie is like not a good 
movie. And I think some of her reaction to that was like, well, you know, things were different then. But, you know, to me, I said like, well, really, is it is it that different? And she's like, well, yeah, no, it's it's very different between now and then because the cultural culture is like very different now. Like people people accept way more things now than they used to then. And I don't think that that's right either. And that's another thing that really struck me about that conversation. And so she's really proud of this part of that family. And uh, my and it's interesting because my grandpa is the name Rutherford comes from Scotland and there's a couple of hops to get like from Scotland, like to the United States, but, and those hops go through Jamaica and then eventually uh, the South and Arkansas, like in the specific. And so there's a County in, in Arkansas that my, that side of the family, like I have direct connections to. And that side of the family is fascinating in the context of the civil war because my great great something something grandfather i actually lose track of like how to count that at at different points but he he actually served in the civil war but he didn't serve uh for the south so arkansas was a was a confederate state but when arkansas seceded and this was true throughout more states in the south than i think most people realize but there were people that were very similar to now saying like it, it wasn't like a hundred percent agreement to secede there was an awful lot of people that said like no we don't want to secede for this why would we secede for this this being yeah. slavery yeah. that's that's the reason that all of like those states like secede and so he decides to join up with a group of uh rebels in the rebellion and they form a cavalry unit, basically like a guerrilla cavalry unit inside of Arkansas that flew with a Union banner. And he fought against the people that my step-grandmother is saying, you should be so proud of this film and with this in it. And I knew all of this in the context of the conversation. And I also know she knows all of this too. And I said, like, but what about, you're, you're saying that these Confederates the Ku Klux Klan, like that they're good people, just like my grandfather was, who was great grandfather who was fighting like against them too. And she's like, well, it was a different time. It's a war. So I'm like, okay. And the, the thing is, is that there was people after the civil war that left the South places like Arkansas and they came to Oregon specifically. And my ancestor is on that side of the family is one of those people that comes to Oregon uh, to go settle like this place and and take it from native peoples like here. But a lot of the people who moved from the South, they had a cause uh, based on Southern heritage. And that cause was we're going to, we're going to establish a state that is explicitly white supremacist out of these new territories that are emerging like over here. So yes, I've got this other relative on this same branch of the family who fought for the union, but that didn't mean that he wasn't a racist and it didn't mean that he wasn't a white nationalist too. Some of the first uh, anti-miscegenation laws. So anti-miscegenation laws are laws that say you can't, you can't marry against your race. And some of those things too, some of those anti-miscegenation laws are not that far away. Uh, it's the 1960s in the United States is how close those kind of laws like were. Some of those customs like still exist too. And that kind of law would have prevented my birth because I'm 
I cross these racial lines, these imaginary racial lines. That's it's like racism is this fiction that has very real world consequences that people feel like all the time. And so that's one of them. And so I know all of like this context at 16 in this room, like with my grandmother, and I'm not able to talk about any of this, like with her really, like I'm able to articulate a few words, but a lot of it's coming out as like, well, but you know, it's like, that's, but it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's, that's like racist, you know? Well, but it is. Oh, no, I know you, I know you don't think that that's, I know you think that that's like a mean word, grandma, but it's kind of, you know, like, and that's, that's all that's coming out is because I can't. Yeah, which is, yeah. I mean, it's, that's a hard, that's such a hard conversation to have one at that age, but two with somebody who's like this elder in your family, right? Where like your dynamics aren't built to be like aggressive like there this and again as you said your upbringing was like i want to keep everyone from being uncomfortable like that is how i work in the world so in this moment as much as you want to have this real conversation there's probably that part of you that's like i don't want to push too hard because i still care about this person this person is somebody who matters in my life but this is totally wrong. Like this, what this person is saying is totally wrong. I want to say what I want to say, but I can't get it out of my mouth. Yeah, I think some of some of that's is yes, and but then some of that's also there's challenges in that family because of a lot of dynamics of abuse and and how those dynamics intersect, like with my mom, and then how they react to my mom, who's also has her own whole series like of issues because of all the things like she's been through, like as a, as a refugee, because some of that has turned into her own like abuse. So there's just a lot of abuse, like on the family, like in all those directions. And in that conversation, I am, I'm staying pretty calm. Uh, I'm, I'm articulating myself poorly, like sometimes. And then some of that is just from, well, you know, I'm trying to connect like with this person. That's why I'm here in the first place. And then just giving her the space to talk. And then, that's where I I asked her, okay, so how were things different? And how are things better then compared to now? And I'll give you a paraphrase of what she said, and I'm going to subtract some of the words that she used because I just, I have a, I can't say them, some of the words that she used. But imagine like your grandmother just dropping the N-word casually, like in a conversation. Um, also a whole host of other racial slurs. And so she says like, well, you know, people just understood their place back then. And that was important that, that there was, there was people who were smart and people who weren't very smart. And if you weren't very smart, you looked this way, you had your skin color look like this and, you know, you could, you could be kind and you could even be friendly with people, but you couldn't really be friends because that's just not the way the world worked. But you could still have these important relationships with people, like the most important relationship, uh, that my grandmother had from that her childhood that she remembered and she talked about this woman like so much was a woman named Effie and Effie was their family maid so she literally grew up with black servants like in her household and that is the context that she has for black people is is this and and it's also the most loving relationship she has like with someone of color from her own childhood is a servant 
who's abused like yeah. by her family. And that's also some of what she's describing in this too, is like how her dad would be quote unquote mean to her sometimes and how the kids like didn't like that, but they, they knew that it wasn't their place like to say anything about it because he was just trying to keep order like in the household. That's another thing that she said too. And she said, but she said that she really loved Effie a lot and that the whole family loved their maid Effie and that they really appreciated her. Um, but Effie understood her place. Like the, Effie understood that it wasn't her place to eat at the dining room table with them. My grandmother is describing her idyllic childhood, which is a white nationalist segregated household where they literally have black servants that have to eat like in a kitchen. And she grabs my hand and she says with all the love that she can muster in her heart, she looks me in the eye and she says, Fred, I just want you to know that even though you're colored and even though people wouldn't have let you eat at the same table with them when I was a kid, uh, I would have made sure that you could eat at the same table with us. You never would have been in the kitchen with Effie. And I was stunned into silence. I couldn't say anything at that point. She wasn't trying to say anything cruel in this moment. And this is the thing that blows my mind away every time I think about this, is she was, as near as I can tell, trying to connect in a very real and human way with me because she was sharing all of her perspectives of all of this. It's just that these are perspectives that are clouded like by her own racism, which is calcified and something that she's unwilling to unearth like from her own psyche. So that's, that's the filter for everything that she's saying. And I can recognize all this at 16. And I can also recognize that she is sharing memories with me that are meaningful to her and very powerful to her as well. So that is her trying to connect like with me too. And I can feel like all of this. Um, I didn't say thank you. I think that's what her expectation was. I think her expectation was that I was going to cry and say, thanks for making sure that I don't have to eat with the black people you consider less than human, like in the kitchen, that you can, I'd be at the table like with you too. Like, and at this point, you know, I'm already spending time outside of my hometown because I had a car at this point. So I would, I would leave sometimes like for a day and I would go to like cities, other places. And some of my friends were very different than the people that I was growing up with. And I'm already having these really human connections with people outside of like this town and outside of this family. And all that's rolling through my head are the faces of all these other friends that I have that are outside of like that town in this moment, like with my grandma and realizing that if any of those people were here with me, she would be disgusted like by that. Cause she still is disgusted by that kind of kind of thing. Like, like me and my mom are an exception to their rule of racism because we're also an exception that breaks this tradition, like in their family about, um, miscegenation like itself because we are we're technically a miscegenous family because we're we're biracial or whatever that means too and so i'm looking at her and i just blink and i finally say what i'm what i'm able to say is well thanks for sharing that with me grandma i appreciate that and she says well what do you think about that and i said that's an awful lot to think about um and I think that you mean really well. And that's that's really like the best I can do. And then it just got really quiet like after that. Because I at that moment I was like, I'm okay if she's uncomfortable. 
and I don't really need to connect with this person ever again. And I did her dishes, and then I left, and I never really spent any time with her, like, again. But it was awkward because, you know, her house is, like, two houses yeah. over from it's ours. Like and yeah. Yeah, and we're, we're going to, you know, we have family gatherings. It was right around Thanksgiving, too. And I remember it's like a lot of that was just about trying to connect with family, like, over uh, the table. Because uh, that was also the last year that I ever fantasized about movie Thanksgivings. Movie thanks. I think that some people have had movie Thanksgivings. Movie Thanksgivings are like there's a ton of food and people are talking, and then it's like someone, it's like a relative shows up and everybody goes like Uncle Harv, yay! And it's, it's all this excitement. <laughs> and you know, our family, it was just like uh, silence and clinking plates and occasionally like someone talking about something, but then everyone worried that they're going to step on a mine and blow things up. Yeah. And that's exactly what I feel like my family Thanksgiving. It's like everything seems okay. And it's kind of in my head, there's just like a ticking clock of like how many more minutes until something's going to go wrong. Like that is always how I've looked at those kind of like big family gatherings. Yeah. This also becomes just another part of like this weird weaponization that I think some families have felt before. Like if you have a dysfunctional family and, and the relationships are not based in loving kindness, like sometimes the relationships end up being based on power. And then one of the power dynamics that develops in the family is just this question of, well, but things were different back then. That's really just how she is because things were different back then. Yeah. The the phrase, the phrase things are different back then is such a, it's such like a, yeah, like a racistly coded term that is just hard to kind of deal with especially today like especially in today's world to accept that as like the truth and you know what you were saying this back in the 90s it's a it's a harder that's a harder thing to grapple with when someone is saying that what's really happening is two things are happening at the same time when someone says like oh well things were different back then they're telling you two things at the same time the first thing that they're telling you is i'm not going to deal with this like in the present because this is in the past, and therefore it's in the past. You can't change anything. Therefore, I'm not going to deal with it uh, in the present. But because they're not willing to deal with it in the present, it means that they're also not going to see it in the present either. So they're going to probably ignore what's happening around you. And then over the last few years, that part of the family, that's born true, like kind of based on their political support and, and who they've decided to support for those kind of reasons. And all of that's born itself out like in my own family too and all i can think about is well things were different during the civil war but we had a relative that decided to fight against the confederates even yeah. though he was a racist so what does that even mean when people say that when i was younger for a very long time i tried to have those conversations and it almost feels like a cliche like from a movie right like you've got the younger more liberal person in the family and they've got long hair and they're always like yeah but we should we should not have nuclear weapons you guys yeah i understand gene like uh, can you pass the cranberry sauce sure can we save the radicalism for after thanksgiving okay and then everyone is still able to come together yeah it's like the whole crux of what uh, all in the family that like old old school tv show with like the kit the son meathead yeah the daughter's boyfriend is like he's the guy who's like the guy with the liberal views that are always questioning what's his name's Archie Bunker's like I don't know family values stuff whatever his thing is yeah it's yeah that's it exactly it's Archie Bunker 
is the conservative racist but mildly racist so that he won't say the n-word yeah. like on tv um yeah sort of relative <laughs> and then meathead is rob reiner's character and he he is like he's the liberal like on the show who represents the quote-unquote other point of view but they can all have dinner together at the same table meanwhile all that's rolling through my head is that my grandmother uh the only grandmother who is in walking distance reachable like by me because my korean grandmother is dead in a concentration camp this idaho grandmother lives in idaho so i just would talk to her on the phone like every once in a while so the only grandparent that is close at hand is someone who believes that they would make an exception for me so i could be meathead at the table i guess even though based on the rules of upbringing that she understands that's not supposed to happen i'm actually supposed to go eat in the kitchen eventually my mom asks me what happened and i tell her what grandma said and then you know my grandma lies about it she says well no i never said that i would never say something that insensitive to a kid like that but everybody knows that that's bull you know when i was younger like i would have those conversations with my family and they would just sigh and say this is just so disruptive or some folks in the family would say like oh this didn't really happen that's another common one um i think the word for that now is gaslighting so that would happen yeah um yeah, it's all like language to not ruffle feathers, right? It's this idea of like you're keeping you're trying not to cause problems and it's that thing you just said this thing you said earlier about things were different back then. When you say that you're you're keeping people from having to look at themselves today, right? Like that's a way to keep them from having to look themselves in the mirror and say like, "Well, would I do that still today?" Like this thing that happened 30 years ago that we're retelling in a story and how this is not okay but we're saying it was okay 30 years ago. Are you still saying it's okay today? And I feel like that phrasing keeps them from having to really look at that. Yeah. And I think when you have that kind of phrasing too, it's damaging because you, you end up internalizing all of that trauma. And yeah, it's, it, I'm going to say something that's, and hopefully like I can thread this needle so that it, it I come across like clearly, like at least, but Racism is traumatizing for everybody. It's traumatizing for the racist and the, the, their victims. I would say that it is uncalculably more traumatic for the victims of racism, just period. You know, it's hard for me to look at, you know, it's hard to look at like American history and go like, well, but the slave masters had it bad too. You know, that's no, that's, there's no equivalence. It's like the slaves. Yeah. There's just, that's, that's nonsensical. Uh, natives in the, in this country uh, had it unequivocally worse than anybody else. But, it is still traumatic for the people that are putting other people through those kind of things too. It's traumatic for them. It's 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 only like a very small percentage of humans that don't feel trauma when they abuse like other people. Then it's specifically sociopaths and psychopaths because they don't have empathy. Everybody else has to squash like their empathy down in order to do these kinds of things. And but then the things that they do, it's worse like for the victims as well. So all of that is for me to say that that unexamined trauma was toxic to a lot of people like my family and like those relatives as well because when you can start to lie to yourself like that you're going to lie about all kinds of things and that's that's a common theme like in my family that's one of the reasons why I ended up becoming a Buddhist later is because um, it's sort of like Buddhism is is my understanding of Buddhism is different than maybe some other folks where you've got these ideas called the four noble truths and the eight Eightfold Noble Path, right? And they're not like rules per se. It's more like a guidebook for handy living. 
It's like, well, you know, you do these things and things will be good. It's like, okay. And if you don't do them sometimes, well, something bad could happen, but it's not the end of the world. And so uh, one of the first ones is called right speech. And part of that idea is that you just don't lie about stuff. And so I've, I've lived by that motto since I was in my 20s. And a lot of that was me disconnecting from that side of the family. It's just learning how to be uh, real, real truthful about things. But then some of the stories I ended up telling, they sound nuts because it's because it's like well but it's but it's it's truth it's just our human lives like are are interesting and multifaceted and strange and there's a lot of things that uh you can't explain that's the reality of life is, is that it's a lot more multifaceted and strange than i think people give credit for too so that's that's one of the reasons why i like storytelling is is because it's just a chance for you to tell those truths like to people too and sometimes those are funny although i think i really think that people laugh for uh I think every emotion that people have can lead to laughter because I think there's all kinds of reasons like why we laugh. And one of my favorites is that laughter from stress release, right? Like, you know where... Yeah, yeah. You know. And I was trying. I was trying with my grandma to make her laugh, but it was real hard because it's like tough. Yeah, like in your mind, you're like, can we just turn this into a funny moment and then not have to have this like serious conversation? Because I would love to not have to like fight you on this thing that I know that you're not going to change your mind on. And I would love to just have a fun moment with you. And you can't have that. Like she, she was just not giving that to you at all. Yes. Cause what I, what I fantasized about when I went into that discussion with my grandma was, you know, I watched a lot of movies as a kid. So I, I was hearing like, like sensitive music and I was hearing, yeah. I was hearing like, she's going to make cookies and I was going to, and she was going to share like some old timey recipe for making beans. Like this was, a, that was one of the things I was really convinced yeah, like, about is that I was going to go over there and she was going to be like, this is the family recipe for beans that's been passed down through the generations or something like that. And it's instead it's like, let's talk about the yeah, KKK. Gonna, <laughs> so. Yeah. I'm going to tell you why our family's heritage is, I'm proud of it and it's not a good reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it just gets worse and worse, like from there. Which I guess, um, I but I'm I'm I did find gratitude, like in that experience, because it did the the thing that I walked away from that with was just I never had expectations for any conversation I ever had for the rest of my life. Ever since then, <laughs> I, I've, I've I've never been like been like I've never built up anything ever since then into that. It's just been okay. What's happening in the moment? What's what's real like right now? So, yeah. Well, cool, Fred. Thanks so much for sharing all this. I wish it was funnier. I think it's fu- it's oh. like, it's like funny. It's not funny, haha. It's more like funny makes you think. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny in that, <laughs> like, yeah, it's things that there was moments that I wanted to laugh at it, but I was also like, oh boy, this is heavy a thing to laugh at. But you're like, the funny part is that you came over being excited to learn about movies <laughs> and you got like the worst lesson about the movies you could have ever wanted. Yeah. Although it's funny though, because in some ways it was the best movie is the best lesson about like the movie industry like itself too. Yes. Like in a way. For all I know, she made up the whole thing just as a way to have a fun story for us to connect about. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of getting a good bean recipe, you find out that one of your relatives <laughs> happily worked on a KKK propaganda film. Always the thing you're trying to avoid that everyone that classic <laughs> that classic trope that everyone's trying to avoid. It's so relatable. It's 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 why it's such a cliche, like in all the rom coms, you know? It's like Yeah. Cool, Fred. Well, thanks so much for sharing. If people want to find out more about what you do or follow you on social media, is there anything you want to share or plug? Uh yeah. Uh I'm working on well, you can always find me on Twitter. I'm you know, I'm uh, F dot on Twitter. 
and I'm usually I it's a mix of jokes and then also sort of political things and then occasionally like memes too. But uh, I'm also working on a podcast right now uh, called uh, Cooking Treehouse, and that's hopefully going to release here like in the next uh, month or two. So um, so you'll see like that on there uh, as well. So it's uh, called Cooking Treehouse uh, with Werner Herzog. So and it it does not feature the real. Werner Herzog and I shouldn't tell people that but <laughs> it's just like it's just an impression of uh, Werner Herzog that uh, I do well if you're interested in the root of that particular show you can also go to YouTube and if you look up uh, Werner Herzog Treehouse um, you will find uh, the video that inspired uh, the podcast that we're working on right now so cool well thanks so much for sharing all this Fred cool and uh, thanks for having me on Brian and uh, uh, really appreciate uh getting to be on the show and spending like some time with you too good chat appreciate it this is how we love this is how we fight for something that's right love hurts is produced hosted and edited by brian berlin theme music by mickey hommel show art by caroline mallon You can find Love Hurts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, and tell a friend about it. You can find Love Hurts on Twitter and Instagram at lovehurtspod, and our website is lovehurtspod.com. I'm Brian Berlin, and this is Love Hurts. Love Hurts.